the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days, or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Good evening, everybody. Ron Geyer with more End Time Insights. And today we're finishing up chapter 24 from the book of Matthew. Very prophetic chapter. We've been on it for 12 weeks. This is week number 13, I think, if I'm counting correctly. I've enjoyed doing it. I've learned so much. And basically it's written in response to the disciples asking uh, Jesus about the temple, when he's coming back and what are going to be the signs. And so Jesus takes 51 verses to give them their answer. He takes them through the tribulation period. He lets them know. And you got to understand these people that are asking the questions basically is probably Peter and John, maybe Andrew. I think there was one other guy there, but they're asking him and they don't know anything. They don't know that Jesus is talking 2000 years down the road. They think he's coming back right away. And so uh, a lot of it's confusing. But a couple of things you understand, he's talking to Jews, this is all Jewish, but he's talking to the church. Well, the church hasn't been established yet, but these people are saved, and on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus establishes the church, they will be part of that church. So for that reason, it's really exciting. It's got great information here for the Jew, but it's also got great information here for you and I, members of the church today. And he talks a lot about what life will be in the tribulation. And he just got through talking about the last five or six verses, what the earth would look like, what the condition of the earth, what people would look like when he actually comes back again. So he has just told him he's coming back. And in verse 45, that's where we left off last week. He challenges them. Well, who then is going to be a faithful and a wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Now, remember, number one, as a ruler, you are to be providing meat for your household. I like that. You know, I'm a ruler. I'm a husband. And to be honest with you, my wife and I, I know biblically I'm the head of the household, but we share that responsibility. She's every bit as smart as I am. Hopefully she's not going to listen to this one. She, she's a great woman. We have a chapter in our book, Women Are Wise. Diane is very wise. Uh, she's up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning praying, interceding for me, for the people that we love, uh, the church. Just a great, great lady. I say this all the time. I married up. But uh, it is my job to provide for my household. And it's not just food, uh, carnal food, but it's also spiritual food. I am ruler in the realm of the spirit, not just a carnal ruler, you know, that like a king over country. No, I am a ruler over my home and I provide spiritual food because that's what they eat, which means the word of God. 
And basically, I am feeding you right now. I am feeding you the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth out of the mouth of God. My words are spirit. They are life. They are health to all those that find them. So once again, who then is a faithful and wise servant? Jesus asked that question, and you're supposed to be answering it. You got your hands up there. And Derek Prince talks about faithfulness, and he says, faithfulness in this life leads to promotion in the next life. I love that. So simple, so obvious. Truth be told, the next life for us guys is going to be the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, where Christ sets up his kingdom on the earth, and we are there. And I can tell you what we're doing there. The Bible tells us that we're kings and priests, but when you take that in its meaning and you apply it to the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, it actually means that we will be shepherding people on the earth, assisting Jesus in ruling the earth while he's here. And I love being a shepherd. I'm shepherding now. Hallelujah. The way we conduct ourselves in this world will determine what we will be for eternity. There is no substitute for faithfulness, writes Derek Prince. Chrysostom, one of the old-time people, he said, faithfulness in little things is a big thing. I like that. Oswald Chambers, the only way to wait for the second coming is to watch what you do and what you should do so that when he comes, it's a matter of indifference. It is the attitude of a child, certain that God knows what he is about. When the Lord does come, it will be as natural as taking your next breath. God never does anything hysterical. He never produces hysterics. Vance Havner once said, Christians do not have to live. They have only to be faithful to Jesus Christ, not only until death, but unto death if necessary. I love all these commentaries, these little sentences they make about faithfulness. J.I. Packer Faithfulness is our business. Fruitfulness is an issue that we must be content to leave with God. So true. So true. We just prove faithful. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We live by faith. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, saith the Lord. But we are not those that draw back unto perdition, unto sin, unto doubt, unto fear. But we are those that believe unto the saving of our souls. Alan Redpath rightly said that reverent fear of God is the key to faithfulness in any situation. And, he says, I would add nothing stimulates a reverent fear like an attitude of expectancy of his return. I I can testify to that. I remember I was, uh, the year Kennedy was shot, I think it might have been 63 or 61, uh, 63, I think. My dad had a heart attack and he wasn't expected to make it through the night. And so he was in the hospital. I remember waving to him from the back of my station wagon. I was probably 12 years old. My mom would go visit him. We couldn't go. He was in there for several weeks. And it was always the same thing. How's dad, mom? He says, your rooms better be clean when he comes back. And so he came back after several weeks. But he wasn't. Al- we lived upstairs. He wasn't allowed to go up the stairs. So we figured we had some time. But anyway, we lived in a constant dread that he would get up the stairs before he was supposed to go up the stairs just to check on our room. And so we, we had to be ready because he could come at any time. And it was the same example that I'm reminded of when these commentators are talking about nothing stimulates a reverent fear like an attitude of expectancy upon his return. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurden, once said, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as the subject of my ambition for life other than to be kept faithful to my God till death. And lastly, William Still reminds us, 
It is impossible to be faithful to Jesus Christ and not incur the opposition of the world. And that is so true. You will be faced with choices all day long. Will I walk in the spirit? Will I walk in the flesh? Will I be carnal? Will I be spiritual? And we need to make the choice that we will honor God, that we will always put God over any fleshly appetites, over any fleshly fears, any fleshly carnal intimidations. So as we wrap up the teaching on Matthew 24 this week, I pray that you're examining yourself in the light of his soon return. Am I faithful? Am I wise? Are you answering these questions? That's why Jesus said this. You know, he's so good to us. Uh, He even warns us of the standard by which he will judge us at our return, the standard for us as Christians of our works. He not only tests us daily, but he provides the answers to the test as well. He not only tests us and provides the answers to those tests as well, but he sends his Holy Spirit to help us accomplish his will. He enables us to pass the test, his own indwelling presence, accompanying us as we do this successfully. That's definitely high privilege and we need not take it lightly. Philippians 2.13, for it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I always read that is, for it is God who works in me both to want to and to accomplish his good pleasure. You allowing God to work in you is the pleasure of God. He is for you. He wants you to win. But winning as defined by God and on his terms, that's how it's supposed to be. For example, church at Smyrna, winning was dying in faith. He showed up Sunday morning, right? Writing the letters, church at Smyrna, uh, chapter 2, Revelation. And he told them, he says, hey, you're going to die. That's not good news. Many of you are going to be cast into prison. But be faithful until the end. Basically, he's saying, die with your faith intact. Honor me. Don't give in. I know death is tough, but there are worse things. Verse 46, what are those worst things? Well, living in fear, number one, is worse than dying. Number two, living as a slave is worse than dying. And so, you know, we need to keep death in its proper perspective. You know, I'm 71. I'm going to be going home to be with the Lord. I'm healthy. I will not go home sick. I will go home with my race run when he calls me to go home, but I'll go home healthy. I'll go home happy. I'll go home holy in the name of Jesus Christ. My wife and I were going together in the rapture of the church. Hallelujah. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. But there's a blessing in store if we will honor the words of Christ. So doing, what's the so doing he's talking about? Just what Jesus said, it's watching and ruling and service and providing for the needs of one's household. Basically, it's doing what one is supposed to be doing with a watchful eye out for the coming of the Lord. Live your lives, family. Continue doing what you've been doing. Don't shirk your responsibility, but do it ever mindful that the Lord and the judge of the earth will be returning at any moment. And he's returning for the purpose of judging mankind. If one hasn't judged oneself already, don't worry, Jesus is going to do it. Well, you should worry. You should judge yourself. If we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. How do I find myself? I find myself guilty. I need what Jesus has done for me. I accept his sacrifice, his substitution, taking the penalty for me so I don't have to go to hell. Guilty, guilty, guilty. He cleanses me. He washes me. He forgives me. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Luke twelve thirty seven. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. Who's girding who? The master is girding himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and he will come and wait on them. Wow. Did you catch that? 
Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Who comes? The master comes. Truly I say to you that he who, the master, will gird himself to serve and have them, the servants, recline at the table and he will wait on them. Look at this incredible promise from Jesus to his servants. Do you understand what he's saying? This remarkable statement pictures Christ at his return, ministering as a servant to believers. Unthinkable. Amazing grace, isn't it? J.C. Ryle remarked, This is perhaps one of the most wonderful promises made to believers in the New Testament. It must probably be interpreted figuratively. It means that there is no limit to the honor and the glory. I have to slow down. This is amazing. Which the Lord Jesus will bestow upon those who are ready to meet him at his second coming. When we live with expectancy, awaiting Christ's return, our diligent obedience becomes our main concern. I don't know who wrote that part, but I believe it sums up pretty well the message by Christ in these last few verses. Our lives would be much different if we learned to live in anticipation of Jesus coming back today. He probably won't. I would think that's the mindset of just about everyone. Not me. Uh-uh. I expect him every time, every day, everywhere. I am ready for him in Jesus' name. But that's just me. But if today is the day, then I'll be ready. The question ultimately is, though, will you? I've got a very simple solution how to fix the church and how to impact our nation. Preach the imminent return of Christ. Preach from our pulpits. Put it on billboards. Tell it on the radio. Talk about it on TV. Come on, preacher guy. If you really cared about the church, if you really love the lost, that would be the evidence of it. Don't be concerned about filling your church. Instead, focus on keeping hell empty. Verse 47, truly I say to you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. Who's that? The servant that is ready. Hallelujah. Someone said, it's amazing enough grace that he saved us, but that he also rewards us. That's crazy grace. (laughs) I know of a truth, and I look forward to this day very much that in the millennial reign, when we serve with Jesus on the earth, the church will be functioning in the role of shepherds. I love that. I consider myself an under shepherd right now. And the thing what I'm doing now will be what I'm going to be doing in greater measure later. I think that I find that exciting. I just can't wait. I'm anticipating that. I love what I'm doing, guiding, guarding, and even governing to a lesser extent God's people. Whose goods? Why, his goods, of course. He's going to put us ruler over his goods, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. I don't have any goods. God does. Well, he's going to allow me to rule over them. I'm just a servant. I have no goods, but he does. He's got the goods. Hallelujah. And he's going to allow us to serve and to rule over them. Well, he's got it all. And he's trusting us because we have proven faithful. Verse 48, but, here's the caveat, but, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. Now granted, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left and his delay in returning could lead many to doubt that he is returning. But don't you be one of them. There are definite signs, signs here already that have taken place that point to not only the fulfillment of that promise, but the nearness of it as well. Notice the contrast in the servants in verse 47 as opposed to verse 46, uh, 47 and 48, excuse me, the contrast between verse 47 and 48. In 47, you have the blessed servant. Now in verse 48, you've got an evil servant. One is busy going about the business of life, doing what one should be doing, serving his master, providing meat for his household. Then on the other hand, you've got the evil servant. And what is the characteristic of the evil servant? 
Verse 48, but and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. Note his heart's deception. My Lord delayeth his coming. Don't forget, if Jesus said he's coming, what do we know? We know that he's coming. He, God is not a man that he would lie. So then, according to this servant's heart, the Lord has violated any promise according to the servant's timetable. His Lord is only late. It doesn't take much for this servant to lose heart, does it? If that servant shall say, there's a but coming for this servant, right? So far, his only sin is doubting his master's return. Let's read on. Verse 49. And the servant that doubts his Lord's coming shall begin to smite his fellow servants to eat and drink with the drunken. Now we see this doubting heart. What happened? It has led to a kind of reprobate behavior, a lifestyle of abuse, drunkenness, and gluttony. His friends are now those who practice such a lifestyle. Doubting God's word has led to this state of affairs. Remember Psalm 1, right? Blessed uh, is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits himself in the seat of the scornful. In that verse, man goes from walking with the ungodly to standing with the ungodly to eventually sitting with the ungodly. He goes from listening to their counsel to fellowshipping with them to eventually joining their company. That's the danger of following ungodly counsel. Satan relies upon the appeal of the flesh to win you away from righteousness. A doubting heart of unbelief is merely the first step in the process of rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. Smiting one's fellow servants doesn't necessarily have to be physical in nature. It's, it could be what? It could be false doctrines. In a moment, Jesus will sentence these folks to damnation and torture, assigning them a place with the hypocrites. Okay, so we're going to learn something about it. Smiting. Smiting the sheep in church could consist of telling one lies, false teaching, dishonoring one's role as a shepherd. Why? Because Jesus says right there uh, in verse 50, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks for him in the hour that he is not aware of. And so that time, the, what's the phrase? The use of, it's called a Hebraism, that means it's, it's Hebrew, it's Jewish, and it parallels the day and the hour emphasizing the certainty of Christ's return and the equal certainty that it is not on our timetable but on the Master's timetable. He will return, and with return there will be a reckoning. Each of the stories that Jesus tells in the parables of the ten virgins, the uh, talents, uh, they all, they pressed home the mark that we must be ready because he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And it's important. Men, they're crying out in Revelation 6, to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. There's not going to be any hiding. No way. Revelation 6, 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man, basically everybody at his return, they hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So the people that reject Christ at his coming, what do they know? They know they're going to be experiencing the wrath of the Lamb. But look what they do. It says here that they said to the mountains. No, they did not say to the mountains and the rocks. They prayed. They were praying to the God of the earth. Remember, they made global warming. They made the earth sacrosanct. They got this 
earth as a holy a holy type of structure that uh, we have to honor it. We can't kill the fish. We can kill the babies. We can't touch the whale. Uh, you know, global warming, we've got to lose jobs and we've got to protect the spotted owl. I mean, we have honored the earth when we should be honoring its creator. And so that's the problem. And so what happens is Jesus... He surprises a presumptuous when he's returning. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him to come. The careless and wanton display of sin in our day reveals presumption, right? Men presume that God is not God anymore. Or if there is a God, he is at least nothing more than a big teddy bear that will do nothing about our sin. That's so wrong, right? God is love. Can't you see the picture painted by the text above? The slave tells himself that the master will be long delayed in returning, that he has plenty of time to live it up. Then he plays the big shot by berating other slaves, smiting them when they don't do what he tells him, and he's spending his time with wild living. What was that? It was in The Hobbit. There was a guy. Was it The Hobbits in the last book, The Return of the King? Uh, They're coming back from their adventures, and one of their fellow hobbits is abusing the, the other hobbits. And so they put a quick end to that. But that's what's going on when you have this false sense of superiority, when you think that you have authority and power, when you forget that there's one greater than you who's coming back and he's coming back solely to judge you. He can come back to reward you. He can come back to judge you. It's up to you. You will know Christ either as Lord now or you will learn of him as judge later. It's a choice that you have to make. Uh, What's God going to do about this guy? Verse 51. And he shall cut him asunder. He's going to cut him in half. And he will appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I love this because it is revealing that the servant who quit looking for God, they call him a hypocrite. Jesus named him as a hypocrite. And what's coming on? Because he followed the false. He didn't guard his heart. And his heart, he questioned in his heart the truthfulness of God's word. Basically, that's all it is. He doubted God's word. The expanded version of verse 51, Matthew 24. Then the master will cut him in pieces and send him away to be assigned or appoint him a place with the other hypocrites. This guy who doubted God returning when he said he would is a hypocrite. The church is full of hypocrites. It's where people will cry and grind their teeth with pain. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth indicating agony and remorse. Philip's paraphrase, he doesn't really have a translation, Philip's, but he's got a paraphrase. And he says, and he will punish him severely and send him off to share the penalty of the unfaithful to his bitter sorrow and regret. Yes, unfaithfulness will cause you to lose out on heaven. You must be faithful. Now there's a question about these actual, who these servants are. Some people think that they're the saved that lose their salvation. Others think that these are just people who never knew God. It's a valid question. Reading it in context, it sounds like these servants, that they are slaves who work for their master, which is true. In that vein, it should be noted that while most expositors would interpret these individuals as unbelievers who will be assigned to that place in hell, there are a few, such as Grant Richardson, who sees these as believers who will lose their rewards. It's interesting. The church has a small division on that topic. Who are these servants? Are they believers or are they unbelievers? Commentator Powell writing that such a warning coming from the lips of Jesus should be sufficient to make every professing Christian examine the quality of his faith and conduct. Apathy is a cancer which destroys the soul. 
My understanding is simply based on the truth that Jesus calls these folks hypocrites. Webster is very simple in his definition of what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite, a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. These folks, they played church, but they weren't the church. This will all be revealed when Christ returns. So these servants, so many, they are hiding in the church today, not quite committed to the lordship of Christ, but unwilling to partake in the sins of the world. Both the rapture of the church and the tribulation period and its attendant sufferings and persecution will fully test those who still are sitting on the fence. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that he knows hearts. He knows everything and everyone. And there is no hiding from his perfect, his final, his eternal judgment. Folks, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not next week. You are held accountable to choose while you are here on this earth now. You've listened to this teaching for 13 weeks on Jesus talking about the end times and his return. Today, I'm calling you to account. Today, you are held accountable. Today is your day of salvation. There can be no more delay, no more hard hearts. Jesus said it plainly, and he said it clearly. You must be born again. Today, brothers, sisters, people that don't know God, let God have your heart. Let him give life to your soul. Let him do that today. Father, I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.